This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Amid the darkness, light. Henry Kissinger is dead. No violence can last forever. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Barnaby Rain. My co-host tonight is Moya Lothian-McLean. Moya, how are you? I'm fine. I'm excited to have a front row seat to watch you dissect the life by sword of Henry Kissinger. (laughs) Well, coming up, we have a full update on Israel's latest crimes and the growing charge of genocide. So stay tuned for all of that. Um, But first, Henry Kissinger, whose sole achievement in life was confirming the moral bankruptcy of the Nobel Peace Prize, has died at the age of 100. Amongst the most mendacious sociopaths to curse the earth, Kissinger spent 30 years at the helm of the US imperialist war machine. He was involved, at a conservative estimate, in the killing of at least three million people. History records few people responsible for so much suffering in so many places around the world as Henry Kissinger, who served or advised many US presidents of both parties across six decades. Let's start with his role as national security advisor to Richard Nixon, where Kissinger's commitment to upholding American geopolitical dominance at any cost wrought havoc across the globe. When Nixon was elected in 1968, America's war against North Vietnam's government had been raging both cold and hot for more than a decade. But the war had become unpopular among Americans, with 500,000 mostly conscripted troops stationed in the country. In an attempt to deflate a burgeoning anti-war movement at home, Nixon and Kissinger publicly pursued a policy of Vietnamization, withdrawing troops and increasing aerial bombardment while negotiating withdrawal with the North Vietnamese. In secret, Kissinger oversaw nearly 4,000 bombing raids on bordering Cambodia between 1969 and 1970. This will be familiar to us today. We've seen how the Israelis, in an attempt to minimize their casualties, seek to destroy Gaza from the skies. By the end of what was called Operation Menu, America had dropped 26 million cluster bombs, amounting to 110,000 tons of explosives on Cambodia, killing as many as 500,000 civilians. And they left behind a political vacuum, later filled by the Khmer Rouge, who would go on to slaughter some 2 million people between 1975 and 1979 as part of the Cambodian genocide. Between 1964 and 1973, Laos, another Vietnamese neighbor, became the most carpet-bombed country per capita on earth. In less than a decade, half of it under Kissinger, the US dropped 270 million bombs on a country whose population was only 3 million. There remain 80 million unexploded bombs still littering the nation. But it wasn't just Southeast Asia that bore the brunt of Kissinger's violence. In the 1971 Bangladesh Liberation War, Kissinger sneered at those who, quote, bleed for the dying Bengalis, as US ally Pakistan ethnically cleansed the Bengali population of what was then officially called East Pakistan. He twice ignored the word genocide in cables of U.S. Consul General Archer Blood in East Pakistan and conspired with Nixon to remove that Consul General from office for pointing out that the U.S.'s approach to the war was, quote, morally bankrupt. Anywhere between 300,000 and 3 million Bengalis were murdered, while thousands of women were raped. Kissinger's determination to keep American hegemony intact also led to numerous interventions in South America. In 1973, Chile's elected socialist president, Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a military coup led by Commander Augusto Pinochet. In his first month in power, Pinochet put 12,000 dissidents in a football stadium where they were tortured, abused, and many were shot. Documents declassified just this year shed light on American involvement in bringing fascism to Chile. In one telephone conversation with Nixon about the coup, Kissinger complained that the US government was not getting enough credit for their role in overthrowing a left-wing government. Kissinger employed a similar approach in Argentina. In 1976, the Argentinian military overthrew the elected government of Isabel Perón, leading to violent reprisals and disappearances of left-wing dissidents. 
1987 investigation, the American magazine The Nation revealed that Kissinger had personally greenlit the military repression in a meeting with the military junta, promising Argentina US support for its brutality. That led to thousands of Argentinian dissidents being imprisoned in over 400 secret concentration camps before being executed. Kissinger lent support to the government of Indonesia when they invaded East Timor. The former Portuguese colony declared independence in 1975, leading to Indonesia annexing the territory. In a meeting in Jakarta, Kissinger and then-President Gerald Ford pledged US support to Indonesia's invasion, asking only that it not take place until they'd returned to Washington. A day later, Indonesia invaded, while the US supplied it with arms. Between 1975 and 1981, 20,000 East Timorans were killed, and around 180,000 people were starved to death, a fifth of the territory's total population. That's just some of the CV of a monster. It captures only part of Kissinger's influence on US foreign policy and the Washington elite from both sides of the political aisle. You know, I think it was Kwame Nkrumah, the uh, great anti-colonial leader who said, America's a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, they have two of them. That really sums up uh, uh, how Henry Kissinger saw uh, Democrats and Republicans in America. Henry Kissinger walks into a bar. It sounds like a joke. Uh, Henry Kissinger and a penguin walk into a bar. Uh, I'm not asking what you do, but what would, would it displease you if I walked over and punched Henry Kissinger in the face? <laughs> would you find that entertaining? Would I, you I, have would. A, would, I would. Would you have a frisson of pleasure even? <laughs> would you feel that justice is, is in some small way served? You hate Henry Kissinger. I fucking hate him. <laughs> yeah. Because in my travels, I stumble across his good works everywhere. I right. See, there are good Americans as well as bad Americans. That was one of the best. Anthony Bourdain, who died in 2018, speaking for many of us when confronted with Henry Kissinger's history of savagery. In 2001, Bourdain also wrote this about the man. Once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose, that's the American interviewer, or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. Bourdain is a cook. He's someone who believes in giving people pleasure and joy. And he spoke for so many of us when he expressed his horror at a world in which powerful people commit atrocities and things like international courts of justice are reserved for the darker and the poorer villains. Despite being the architect of countless war crimes, Kissinger has no, no, I should say, because he was the architect of countless war crimes, Kissinger has no shortage of admirers. Former US President George W. Bush released this statement. America has lost one of the most dependable and distinctive voices on foreign affairs with the passing of Henry Kissinger. I've long admired the man who fled the Nazis as a young boy from a Jewish family, then fought them in the United States Army. When he later became Secretary of State, I should say, if Kissinger had been a diplomat when the Nazis were in power, I'm sure he wouldn't have cared how many Jews died. When he later became Secretary of State, his appointment as a former refugee said, about as much, uh, said as much about his greatness as it did America's greatness. He worked in the administrations of two presidents and counseled many more. I'm grateful for that service and advice, but I'm most grateful for his friendship. Laura and I will miss his wisdom, his charm, and his humor, and we will always be thankful for the contributions of Henry Kissinger. This is someone who was responsible for the deaths of enormous numbers of people. And this is how power thinks, because, of course, powerful people treat enormous numbers of people as, uh, as lives expendable. Uh, here's brand new British Foreign Secretary David Cameron reacting to the news. Most saddened to hear that Henry Kissinger has passed away. Only a few months ago, we discussed issues as wide ranging as the war in Ukraine, the threat Iran presents and fresh challenges posed by Russia and China. Even at 100, his wisdom and thoughtfulness shone through. He was a great statesman and a deeply respected diplomat who will be greatly missed on the world stage. So he will. Murderers everywhere will miss him. Here's my favorite from an all time favorite human being. Here's Tony Blair's reaction to Henry Kissinger's death. If it is possible for diplomacy at its highest level to be a form of art, Henry was an artist. Of course, like anyone who has confronted the most difficult problems of international politics, he was criticized at times, even denounced. 
But I believe he was always motivated not from a coarse realpolitik, but a genuine love of the free world and the need to protect it. You see Blair here referring to um, uh, the, 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 the argument about whether Kissinger's a realist or, as Nal Ferguson, his biography put it, an idealist, um, uh, whether he's realistic about the brutal pursuit of power or idealistic about uh, the will to crush huge numbers of people. Kissinger was a problem solver, whether in respect of the Cold War, the Middle East, or China and its rise. And not once did he ever stop thinking about the future, reflecting on it and proffering wisdom upon it, most recently on the technology revolution. I consider it one of the greatest privileges of my political life to have known him. From that first moment of meeting him to the last, he inspired me and taught me I will forever be grateful to him. Tony Blair will forever be grateful to Henry Kissinger. It's sad in a way that Henry Kissinger is dead, because now we know that it will never be the case that Tony Blair and Henry Kissinger will together sit in a cell where they both belong. Earlier today, I spoke to writer, journalist and filmmaker Tarek Ali. I began by asking him what he made of Tony Blair's comments. Kissinger was certainly an artist as far as organizing, killing people, toppling regimes, uh, etc. was concerned. But his artistry came out in his capacities as a war criminal, which he was. And I remember very well about a decade ago, he went to the nation's Christmas do uh, in New York and was overheard telling the editor, oh, I was in two minds about coming to this because a majority of the people at this party will see me as a war criminal. So he knew what he was, and it was very truthful, that self-realization at a party packed with liberals. I don't think Kissinger had too many illusions about himself. He knew what he did, which was carrying out or organizing coup d'etats, invasions of countries, uh, for the United States, in the interests of the United States, taking bold decisions as far as the U.S. was concerned. And that is what he was. I mean, the Rolling Stones headline today says it all. Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies. Quite honestly, there's not too much more to say after that, except what he, he did and uh, uh, explain to a younger audience exactly uh, what his role was. Now, in the 1960s, you were a leader of the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign in Britain, which brought thousands onto the streets and protested outside the U.S. Embassy in Grosvenor Square. How did people in that movement, people of Vietnam and people all over the world supporting them, how did they see Henry Kissinger? Well, when he came into prominence <clears throat> in the later stages of the Vietnam War, uh, virtually everyone involved in or sympathetic to that movement saw him as a war criminal. Look, the most appalling atrocities were being carried out, nonstop use of chemical warfare, um, chemicals, uh, Vietnamese civilians being drenched with chemicals, napalm being hurled at children, villages being destroyed, just which villages that only contain civilians. This was all on television, on mainstream television in the United States and in Britain. It wasn't hidden. It's after the Vietnam War that they got a bit more careful of what they could show. So the final casualties were Vietnamese 2 million, the United States 50,000. And Kissinger said it wasn't a bad sum. So he was a good mathematician. It wasn't a bad sum, given what the U.S. had been doing. But this is because the Vietnamese didn't have an air force that they could use. No one was helping them. Um, and uh, so Kissinger was regarded with growing anger by large numbers of people, not only those who supported the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign. I mean, there were 60 or 70 Labour MPs uh, who were very hostile to the Vietnam War and acted independently on their own. And they were very hostile to Kissinger, though the Labour government, especially under Callaghan, was very pro him. I mean, there's some appalling scenes when he visited the camaraderie, the Callaghan and 
Kissinger waiting for Kissinger's plane to take off and joking, actually quite disgusting jokes, really sexist jokes attacking Margaret Thatcher, oh, now you've got a woman to deal with and all this sort of stuff, pretty appalling. So nobody liked him here. I mean, he was probably, I don't think even the British Foreign Office at that time and possibly later even appreciated his so-called virtues and his brilliance as a statesman, uh, which some newspapers report in The Guardian was critical of him throughout. Do you think that so-called brilliance as a statesman amounted to nothing more than the indiscriminate and blanket use of violence? Or do you think there's anything more to the Kissinger Doctrine than that? Well, the Kissinger Doctrine basically, uh, you know, the one thing he did was that he never went on about we're doing this for the good of the world, we're doing this to bring democracy. They used that. Kissinger himself was quite, uh, he didn't like using what we today call humanitarian rhetoric. He said, these people are commies, get rid of them. Chile is under a, dicta- uh, under a left-wing government which could go the way of Cuba, organize a military coup there, anything that suited U.S. interests. And that was his main criteria. You know, he wasn't in it for himself. He was a defender of the American empire, wanted to make sure that they won where they had to win, was depressed and upset when they lost, as they did in Vietnam, as they did in Angola, uh, and finally, as they did in Cambodia which was a horror story that Kissinger masterminded. So it's pointless, you know, treating him as an individual. He was a creature of the American state, and he acted on its behalf, and when he could, he did the job quite well. You mentioned the case of Angola. We could think also of the end of apartheid in South Africa when forces of of freedom beat uh, forces backed by Henry Kissinger. Today, of course, he's dead. are there any happy memories from those decades of fighting people like Henry Kissinger? What, what happy memories will you take? Well, the happy memories we took is that occasionally we won. Uh, <clears throat> we won in Vietnam. We helped to defeat uh, apartheid. The Cuban decision to send Cuban troops to Angola was one of the most internationalist moves made by any state uh, for a very long time. And Fidel, in his speech, said the bulk of the slaves who came to work in Cuba, brought here by slave owners, came from Angola and the region surrounding it. And it is our debt to them to save, to help them, that we are sending our soldiers back to fight. And a lot of black Cuban soldiers went and fought. And we we won that one, which is why Nelson Mandela, the first country he visited was Cuba. He said it is from this city in Havana that the decisions were taken which showed that apartheid was not invincible. And, uh, you know, that pleased everyone, actually, that we weren't permanently losing to the United States. And that made us very, very happy. I mean, uh, quite honestly, I don't know who's going to observe a minute's silence for Henry Kissinger, probably the, the cabinet and the government, if even they decide to do it. But lots of people I know have been ringing me since the morning. Are The first thing they do is laugh. And then I realize what the laughter was for. I mean, it's not nice to laugh when anyone dies, but this guy had gone on for a bit too long, actually. I'm really glad I outlived him. It's a great slogan of Jewish radicalism, we will outlive them. It is a promise that we make, and we make it not just to Henry Kissinger, but to Netanyahu and Ben Gvir, to Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, to everyone who supports or enables brutality and genocide. We will outlive you, and eventually we will beat you. While some in the West are paying breathless tribute to Kissinger's record, others have had quite a different reaction. These were the scenes at a pro-Palestinian protest in New York City as news of Kissinger's death was announced. Joining me now is Greg Grandin, Pulitzer Prize winning author, 
professor of history at Yale University and the author of the authoritative biography, Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. I'm absolutely delighted that you could be with us today, Greg. Um, tell us first about Kissinger's approach to foreign policy. You've traced him right from those early days when he was writing terrifying things as an undergraduate, I believe. Uh, tell us what his approach to foreign policy was and where it came from. Well, uh, you know, uh, Kissinger is often de de described as a realist, as somebody who is uh, a kind of quintessential realist. He believes that power and order are the defining features of the world and uh, how, the, how the interstate system should be organized among great powers. And, and there's some truth to that, but, but they missed to the degree in which um, Kissinger was very much influenced by a philosophical strand of German political thought called romanticism or subjectivism, whatever you want to call it, a sense of a kind of will to power uh, subjectivism that, that, um, that great men actually aren't constrained by the realities of the world, that they can intervene and, and, um, and, and steer the course of history. Uh, he, he wrote a 500 page under graduate thesis on a number of different political thinkers, most importantly for our discussion, Oswaldo Os Spengler, the, the, the German geostrategic uh, philosopher and romantic who, who at the turn of the century of the you know, 1900s uh, wrote about the rise and fall of empires and the idea that... Um, Empires kind of reach their zenith when, uh, when, when they lose a sense of of their own self. When when the accountants and the economists and the bureaucrats take over, and the poets and the warriors and the priests give give way, and um, and it's at that moment when and when when. Politi when political powers know that they can project their power, but but forget why they are projecting their power, that um, that decline sets in, and so this was a this you one would one one might one doesn't want to read too much into this. This isn't the Rosetta Stone to everything that Kissinger did, but it is a pretty good um, it is a pretty good guide to how he imagined. Uh, uh, the crisis of the United States. Um, he came. He 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 came to power in 1968, 1969. That's when he was made national security uh, advisor for um, for for for, um, for Richard Nixon. After he after he helped Richard Nixon intervene during the campaign to scuttle a possible peace talk, peace truce in in, in Vietnam. Which Nixon felt would hurt him and and benefit his Democratic rival, um, and um, and then he was rewarded with the post of national security uh, strategist or or advisor, and from that point forward, Kissinger, you know, he he was he was he was motivated by many different philosophies, but more than anything else, he was a self-promoter. He was a very, he was very good at presenting himself as who other people wanted him to be. In this sense, he was quintessentially American as American as Benjamin Franklin. He was, he really was self-made. He was born in Firth, Germany in, I think, 1823 in Weimar, uh, Germany. He, he, um, he migrated to the United States in, when he was 13, after the Nazis came to power, he lost, he did lose many in his family to the Holocaust. And, um, and, and, uh, and he entered into the, uh, intelligence agent service in world war, in world war two. And, um, and then, and then, um, from that he went, he went to Harvard and he established a kind of intellectual base that, um, and connections with the Cold War foreign staff, the emerging Cold War foreign establishment elite um, that he then used to um, to advance himself. First as a scholar, uh, he, he he made a name for himself as a um, as a theorist of nuclear weapons under the uh, during the Eisenhower period when 
when mutually assured destruction was the guiding, reigning way of, of, of thinking about the use of nuclear weapons, that, that, like, that, that, um, that if, you know, if any use of nuclear weapons would lead to mutually assured destruction. Kissinger put forward a kind of theory about, you know, based on, based on a lot of game theory about rational choice and, 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 and the possibility of using limited nuclear weapons. Right, and that if you you know if if you if you aren't willing to um to to engage in limited nuclear warfare, then um then there was nothing to stop your opponent from pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope forward and forward and forward, and this this became very influential among a certain cohort of of uh, of of um of intellectuals, uh, you know Herman Kahn and other nuclear theorists. And, uh, and, 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 and then from, from, from his time as, as a, as a, as a, as a scholar and, a and he stayed at Harvard, he became a, he became a, um, uh, uh, got a professor at Harvard. Um, he, um, he began to work for the Republican party and democratic party alike. He was very bipartisan and, one of the things that's interesting about Kissinger and why he's good to think with is that his evolution and his his progress nicely tracks the evolution and progress of the rightward drift of the United States. So he starts off more or less as a liberal Republican working with uh, Nelson Rockefeller, thinking fully that Rockefeller is going to be the nominee in 1968 for the presidency. When that doesn't happen, when Nixon get, gets it, he, he's horrified. But he, you know, turns on a dime. He makes his peace with Nixon. He thinks Nixon is at first. He thinks Nixon is completely outside the mainstream and completely, you know, uh, dangerous and pathological. But then he just turns on a dime and 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 offices his offices his services and his, you know, and, and basically passing on information that he has from his white from his Democratic um, uh, contacts in the in in the Johnson administration to uh, to Nixon to help the campaign. Same thing with with Reagan. He thought Reagan was was inconceivable that Reagan would be president, but then he made his peace with Reagan. The neoconservatives rose up, basically fighting K uh, uh, Kissinger, basically attacking everything that he supposedly believed in. And then but Kissinger made his peace with the neoconservatives. By the end of his life, he was he was calling Donald Trump a potentially great president. So you, you kind of can see the drift to the right and Kissinger, Kissinger going along with it. So so marking out, charting out the evolution of his life is, is a useful way of thinking about the contours of, of, US, of U.S. foreign policy. So I want to ask you a bit more about that because I, I, as your talk, I'm, as you talk, I'm thinking of the, the, the famous line from Hegel about Napoleon being world history on horseback. You know, Kissinger's acquired an almost mythical status as an individual villain, but I'm interested in how we should see his place instead within the structures of American empire. What does his idealism about a warrior empire and his um, uh, his, his much-hailed realpolitik, uh, what does his violence over decades tell us about the ways that American imperial practice works? Well, again, you know, he, he, he lived to be 100 years old, and in many ways he was the American century. He was the American century incarnate, especially... Especially, he comes to power at a moment in which U.S. U.S. authority is in crisis. Right, it's about to collapse because of Vietnam, because of domestic polarization at home, and so Kissinger is key. And this is what makes Kissinger so important. You know, beyond you know his individual morality and whether, you know, we'll leave it to the gods about whether he was evil or not. And we'll leave it to the judges about whether he was a war criminal or not. Why he's important is that Kissinger is, is helps negotiate the transition from a pre-Vietnam cold war national security state that is based on popular support, bipartisan consensus um, and 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 uh, and to a, a, a to a new national security state that has to take into account uh, domestic polarization, mass protest, 
uh, political rivalry and ge a general culture of dissent and protest. And Kissinger and Nixon, you know, really learn, they really are the first administration that, that, um, that figures out the ways to, 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 to benefit from, from, from polarization caused by, by foreign policy. You know, they, they really kind of manipulate internal divisions, domestic divisions within the country. And, and Kissinger is also, you know, very secretive. So a lot of the covert nature of that second stage of the national security uh, state, which is necessary to be because of domestic opposition, was was orchestrated and and by Kissinger the secret bombing of Cambodia for instance you trace a line from that to to, to Iran Contra the the running of different anti communist uh, uh, proxy wars often you know off the books you know without 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 Congress's approval so so Kissinger is very is very useful at kind of opening up that moment between the between the, the near collapse of US authority as a, as a result of Vietnam and then the reconstruction of a, of a, of a national security state to deal with the crisis caused by Vietnam and he's also key in the pivot from S Southeast Asia to the Middle East which you know is you know which more than anything else was still living with Today, the the linking the United States is. I mean, Kissinger in the nineteen seventies put into place more or less, and 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 solidified and cemented in a series of decisions that we're still living with today. For instance, he signed a document that demanded that the PLO recognize the right of existence, Israel's right of existence, uh, without demanding any similar. Uh, such a commitment from Israel in terms of the Palestine, Palestinians, right? So right there, we're still living with that, 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 that the Palestinians have to, you know, recognize the right of Israel to exist, but Israel has is under no such commitment. At the same time, and, and the other consequential thing he did in the Middle East was he, he, um, he, he locked in the United States' relationship simultaneously with, on the one hand, Israel, and on the other hand, with Oil producing Arab states, and um, and in some ways, the, you know, the consequences of, of of those decisions made in in the Middle East are still with us today. And he was also one of the first, um, one of the first to begin the politicization of of Pakistan in terms of um, making inroads in um, in in, uh, in 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 Saudi Arabia in uh, in Afghanistan. Sorry. In, in Afghanistan and so Soviet, you know, allied Afghanistan, um, he and, and and he was one of the he he began uh, to encourage Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and the ISI of Pakistan to to mobilize what we call now political Islam in order as a counter to the Soviet Union. So there's many ways in which the pivot from South, South the pivot from Southeast Asia. From defeat in Southeast Asia to the Middle East is 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 the key moment of history, and Kissinger Kissinger is all over that. He's also all over the 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 petrodollar. The, the you know, there's a lot of demands for a new world economic order, a new you know uh, you know that would that would rectify that would more that would help uh, um, rectify the inequalities in the global economic system. Um, in the 1970s, Kissinger and 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 key to that was to use oil wealth as a way to capitalize third world third world development. Kissinger was key to making sure that didn't happen. To make sure that 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 petrodollars were recycled through private markets, right, and especially through New York and 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 London banks and the Department of Defense and um, the defense industry in the United States, right. It was, you know, the petrodollars uh, uh, served as a buffer in some ways from the fast post-Vietnam drawdown. 
you know, it's, you know, the the, the the collapse of demand for U.S. weapons as a result of the United States withdrawing from Southeast Asia was made up by selling them to Saudi Arabia and and pre-revolutionary Iran. So Kissinger's, you know, his hands are all over that. And I'll just, and I know we've been talking for a while, but I'll just say one more thing. And the other thing is that he's he's also a kind of exemplar of 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 the man who, who in public office presides over a series of crises and then when they move into the private sector uh grow rich over those by profiting over those crises Kissinger was only in political office for eight years of his life from you know from the the Nixon and Ford administrations um for the vast majority of his post public office life he was he he was with Kissinger Associates, which was the premier consulting agency of the transition to neoliberalism, and so they Kissinger Associates, um, you know, was hand in glove working to privatize most of the world after the Cold World, after the Cold War, and and so we have a lot of documents about his time in office. We know all of the horrible things that he did. You know, pick a country, and Kissinger did some horrible thing in it over the course of eight years, or or his actions, you know, had some consequences, that, you know, over the course of eight years. But, but, but it's a complete black hole. This Kissinger Associate is a is a private company. What what they were doing over for the last thirty years, or whatever it was, since nineteen seventy six to the present, you know, you know what role they played in 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 creating the Russia that exists today, what role they played in the corruption in Latin American privatization, what role do they play in the in the corruption of, of, of African privatization in places like Ghana so and, and the Congo. So, and, you know, that part of his life, we just don't have any access to whatsoever. Greg Grandin, I wish I could ask you so many more questions. Um, alas, I'm told we have more news to cover. Um, it's been an absolute joy having you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. And I would encourage everyone to read Greg's Kissinger's Shadow and indeed his earlier books, Fordlandia and others, uh, about South American history. Um, so thank you so much uh, to Greg Grandin for joining us. Before we move on to our next story, I'd like to remind you that Navara Media is running a fundraiser. Navara's people-powered and supporting the show makes everything we do here possible. So if you're not already signed up, please consider going to navaramedia.com support. Anything from as little as one pound per month really does help us. That link is in the description below this video. But now on to a roundup of the latest news from Palestine. The Palestinian dissident and political prisoner Ahed Tamimi has been released from an Israeli jail. She was just one of the 30 Palestinian detainees, including 16 children and 14 adult women, freed by Israel. Here is Ahed speaking after her release. Tamimi was arrested by Israeli forces earlier this month for an Instagram post that her family says she did not write. It was not Tamimi's first time in Israeli captivity. In 2017, a 16-year-old Ahed was filmed kicking and slapping an Israeli soldier after her cousin was shot in the head 
by a rubber bullet. Later arrested, she served eight months in prison for slapping that soldier. This is how occupying forces attempt to humiliate those they're occupying. Ahed's release came as part of the sixth exchange of detainees today since the truce began last Friday. On Wednesday evening, a further 10 Israeli hostages, as well as five Thai nationals, were handed to the Red Cross by Hamas guerrillas at Gaza's Egyptian border. Included among the Israelis were five minors and five women. Also on Wednesday night, Israel and Hamas agreed a further extension to the truce, though it only appears to be for 24 hours. As a result, two further hostages have been released by Hamas, with more expected to be freed before Friday morning, which is when Israel's attack on Gaza might resume if no further extension is agreed. The prospect of renewed military intervention in Gaza by Israel comes as the World Health Organization warned of an impending risk of famine in the territory, with 1.7 million people displaced in the Gaza Strip amid severe food and fuel shortages after seven weeks of blockade. Six days has not been enough time for aid to reach all who need it. The World Health Organization says it was able to deliver food to just 120,000 people during the pause. Remember, there's 2.2 million people in Gaza. The pause has also allowed some Palestinians to return to their homes, many of which have been destroyed. And some are also having to relive the horror of the bombardment that drove them away. CNN has broadcast one family's account of their indescribable loss. I should warn you, this footage contains scenes that some might find disturbing. Khalid and Reem were inseparable. Her grandfather was her whole world. Her favorite game, pulling his beard, and he would pull her piggy tails. I'll let go, she says, if you let go. Khalid just can't let go of his little Reem. Now searching for memories amid the rubble of his home. This was Reem's doll, he says. The family was asleep when an airstrike nearby brought down their house in southern Gaza last week. Khaled woke up screaming for his children and grandchildren, struggling to walk in the dark and through the wreckage to find them. I couldn't find anyone. They were buried underneath all this rubble, he says. My daughter Mesa was here. Her children, Reem and Tare, were here in her arms. Mesa and her sister barely survived. After a few days in intensive care, they're now recovering at a relative's house. I felt something heavy on top of me. I started screaming, Mesa says. I heard Reem screaming next to me. I told her, there's something heavy on top of me. I can't reach you. I said my final prayers. And next, I woke up in the hospital. Mesa woke up to the news. Her three- and five-year-old children were gone. Their lifeless bodies found together under the rubble. They slept next to each other that night. They slept early, she says. I told them to stay up a little longer, but they said they wanted to sleep. At the hospital, I was just numb, she says. I hugged them. I wanted to get as many hugs as I could. No matter how much I hugged them, I didn't get enough. That is, of course, a story that will have been replicated thousands of times across Gaza, where so far over 6,000 children have been killed. And even that doesn't capture the horror of the assault, with 15,000 people we think killed in total, and an estimated 7,000 bodies still missing beneath the rubble of the devastated territory. Sometimes children have been pulled from that rubble after days stuck there. So let's go to just a bit more of that report. With their father abroad working, they lived with their grandfather. Reem was so attached to him, and he spoiled her. They kept asking for fruit, but there's no fruit because of the war, he says. I could only find them these tangerines. Khalid holds the tangerine he gave Reem, the one she didn't get to eat, and pinned close to his heart her tiny earring. He breaks down as he remembers their final evening, how his grandchildren begged him to take them out to play. But he couldn't. Airstrikes were everywhere. Khaled says he's not a fighter. They had nothing to do with the war. But like so many in Gaza, his family paid the price. 
Khalid held Reem in his arms for one last time. He hugged her motionless body, opened her eyes, and kissed her goodbye. I was asking her to kiss me like she used to, but she didn't, he says. I used to kiss her on her cheeks, on her nose, and she would giggle. I kissed her, but she wouldn't wake up, he recalls. I held Tariq. I fixed his hair the way he liked it. I was wishing, hoping they were only sleeping, he says, but they weren't sleeping. They're gone. Gone a month before her fourth birthday, a birthday Reem shared with her grandfather. She was the soul of my soul, Khaled says. Mass civilian casualties, potential famine and disease, and unimaginable displacement. Now, a shooting in Jerusalem too, where two brothers reportedly opened fire on people waiting for a bus. Five people were killed, including the two Palestinian gunmen, and 16 people were injured. Hamas has confirmed that the men were members, saying, quote, the operation came as a natural response to unprecedented crimes conducted by the occupation. Hamas mentioned both the brutalization of Gaza and the torture of Palestinian prisoners who are kidnapped by occupation soldiers, sometimes shoved into sham courts that boast 99% conviction rates, and then imprisoned for years and abused. Well, I'm joined now by Moya, and I'm very happy to say it. Moya, why is there more outrage in the Western media about the violence of the colonized and about Israeli hostages than about the daily violence against Palestinians and the thousands languishing in Israeli jails? I think it's a question that we've been addressing regularly on this show. And apologies to my parents, that last report about um, Reem, the four-year-old girl, really, really got to me. Uh, So what we've seen is there is coverage in the Western media. There is outrage in the West about the violence against Palestinians, but it comes in pockets. It comes in small, little pieces. And it's always a drop in the ocean compared to the ultimate framing of, you know, the Palestinians are somehow in the way of the Israelis. They're blocking this determinate the determination uh, that the Israelis have and the birthright that the Israelis have to create their safe haven. That's the unconscious message that's given to us. So when we see the humanization of Palestinians, it's always in very small piecemeal bits like we saw with that CNN report this really you know absolutely devastating uh piece of reportage that looks at this one family and stresses they were not involved in the war they are exempt from the war it completely says this is the standard of innocence we have but then you look at all the other coverage CNN has been doing particularly the coverage where they've had to run it through the IDF for getting it approved for broadcast and you see how that report that really humanizing report that shows palestinians um as a population under bombardment a population who are enduring some of the most horrific ethnic cleansing possible uh is positioned against the rest of the coverage which you know situates what israel is doing as this this mission almost sent this mission of faith that is sent to wipe out Hamas that is necessary uh that is important in order to protect Israel and the Israeli population and when you also look at the coverage of Palestinians and I'll take that CNN report again um it makes sure that only some Palestinians are given that option of humanity in even those small pockets so it's children it's a grandfather but if you look at the way that they'll frame, for example, young men or even people who might be involved in Hamas, there is no exploration of motivation. There is no exploration of the wider context in which they may have taken up arms or which they may have been motivated to act against an occupying situation. There is only these people are evil or if you have thrown a stone at a tank or if you have uh, fought back in any way, you are robbed of the legitimacy um, of your humanity. Um, and I also have been rereading around prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, because I think that's quite a telling ongoing situation. And it's not that in Western media in particular, there hasn't been coverage of Palestinian prisoners and the treatment 
that they experience at the hands of the Israeli justice system. There's been coverage multiple times across the years. So all throughout the 20th century, and then if you go into the 2000s, you know, in 2005, there was extensive coverage that cropped up again and again and again about Palestinian prisoners. But it always ends with this appeal by the Palestinians talking to the international community in Western media. And it's an appeal that's never answered, which is very, very telling. So the Israeli state playbook has not really changed since 1947. What is happening is they're always testing to see how Western states respond, how Western media responds, the more brutality they meter out to the Palestinians, the more they advance this ongoing Nakba. And what, the, the, what they've he heard loud and clear from the West is that international justice doesn't apply. There may be a bit of hand-wringing, a couple of Western media reports about how bad it is for, you know, Palestinian civilians, Palestinian prisoners. But ultimately, the level of violence is increased and increased and increased until we see what we're seeing now, which is this full-blown campaign of ethnic cleansing out in the open once more. I saw a member of the British Parliament stand up in the House of Commons and say he was very concerned about aid reaching Israeli hostages. They had to be fed and clothed and looked after um, while they were uh, uh, being held by Hamas, with no concern for hundreds of thousands, millions of Palestinian people. And what we have witnessed in the language around Palestine is what W.E.B. Du Bois a century ago called a color line, that, that global color line that he said would be the defining issue of the 20th century. It's still a defining issue for us, which is that some people are coded, marked out for an inferior package of rights, ultimately for dispossession. And it's a color line familiar to everyone who gets on a small and rickety boat to try to reach safety across the Mediterranean or the Aegean um, or, or the English Channel. It's a color line familiar to people all over the world who are expected to labor and to die in appalling conditions for prosperity, wealth enjoyed elsewhere. And it's a color line that will become especially pressing. And the Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, said this in his statement about Gaza, especially pressing as we face climate brutalization. A, a world in which many, many millions of people, possibly many, many billions of people, will be told that the walls must grow higher to keep them out as the places that they live burn or as they drown, the choice that we face, and it is the choice represented by Palestine and by all of us who pour onto the streets to support the Palestinian people, is a choice between a world in which some lives matter and other people are, are treated as expendable, or a world in which everyone lives in freedom. That's what the Palestinian flag represents, and it's what horrifies the Western media and Western politicians. So on that note, our final story tonight. What is the State of Israel's plan for the Palestinian people. How does it see them? Here is Israel's former Minister of the Interior, Ayelet Shaked, in a new interview. There is a consensus in Israel that the war has to continue. You just said right. that. I've, I've seen that in all the, mm -hmm. the polling I've seen. There's a question of what comes after. People say Hamas must be destroyed. Yes, right? it must. But um, then, okay, well then, well then what? There's some who said maybe the Palestinian Authority uh, can, can be the governing entity. No, they can't. Okay, so I, I know that you 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 repost They can because they're so then, educated for hate, you know. But they're not. While but they're they are not educated, Hamas, right? They are not Hamas, but they are educated for hate. But then who? And they are who? paid for slay, so they can't. Who? Okay, so what we want to do first is to eliminate Hamas, and then to have a buffer zone, okay. you know, in order to to keep our villages safe, and then um. There should be like maybe international international allies from you know countries like Egypt, like the UAE that will come and manage their lives there for a few years. We need to do you know denazification in order to what does you know, that do, mean? It, denazification? Yeah, denazification. Yeah, because right now their children from the age. Of since they are, since they born from the age of two or three, we saw it in the gar in the kindergartens. We saw it in their school. They are being educated to slaughtered Jews. Okay. This is how they are being with, educated. With Note the absence of much distinction between Hamas and everyone in Gaza. Even the children are Nazis. How does that rhetoric filter into Israeli society? Well, here are Israeli children singing about Gaza.
swastika bearers. One of the strange ironies of our world, our post-Holocaust world, is that racists identify the savages that they want to destroy precisely by accusing those savages of racism. Uh, so while we have these logics of open-air prisons in Gaza, reducing Gaza to a kind of concentration camp, uh, Israel's saying that the people they're bombarding are, 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 are Nazis. These moments are not outliers. Because it's important, right? When you say a nation is full of Nazis, uh, you know what, what you have to do with them. We know what we want to do with Nazis. I certainly know what I want to do with Nazis. Well, naming his enemy, Israel's president says, quote, an entire nation is responsible. Israel's agriculture minister says, quote, Gaza Nakba 2023, that's how it will end. Israel's defense minister says all food and fuel must be cut off to people in Gaza because they are, quote, human animals. Israel's former information minister talks of, quote, erasing all of Gaza from the face of the earth. One current minister calls for nuking Gaza, dropping a nuclear bomb. A former major general in the Israeli army, Giora Eiland, writes this. The way to win the war faster and at a lower cost for us requires a system collapse on the other side and not the mere killing of more Hamas fighters. The international community warns us of a humanitarian disaster in Gaza and of severe epidemics. We must not shy away from this, as difficult as that may be. After all, severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer. That is how they are talking, of epidemics. And these are the results. All hospitals in northern Gaza have stopped functioning. They have been shelled, surrounded by tanks, and bombed. Israel has attacked more than 60 ambulances. The World Health Organization reports over 160, quote, attacks on healthcare by Israel. The director of Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza says Israel is waging a war on hospitals. Medical Aid for Palestinians, the charity, talk of the near-total collapse of Gaza's healthcare system. When the Israeli army forced staff to evacuate one hospital, those staff had to leave babies on incubators to die and then decompose. Meanwhile, as Moin Rabani has pointed out, Israel has killed more UN workers than Hamas commanders. It's almost as if it isn't just about Hamas. A week after the October 7th attacks, a leaked Israeli intelligence report said this. Expel all Palestinians from Gaza, leaked Israeli report says, in new bid to ethnically cleanse the enclave. That's reporting from the new Arab. Bezalel Smotrich is Israel's finance minister with special responsibility for governing Palestinians in the West Bank who cannot vote for him. In 2017, Smotrich called for this. A victory founded on the understanding that there is no room in the land of Israel for two conflicting national movements. There is room only for one expression of self-determination west of the Jordan River, that of the Jewish nation. Today, that same man is responsible for Palestinian life in the West Bank. And he describes Palestinians in the West Bank as, quote, two million Nazis. There's that Nazi framing again. And as a minister, he's accelerating settlement building to seize more and more Palestinian land. Since October 7th, West Bank settlers armed by the Israeli state have displaced hundreds of Palestinians, including sometimes burning their villages. The United Nations says more than 900 Palestinians have been forced to leave their homes in the West Bank. The world-leading Israeli Holocaust historian Omer Bartov issued this warning about Palestine. We know from history that it is crucial to warn of the potential for genocide before it occurs, rather than belatedly condemn it after it has taken place. I think we still have time. Some outsiders still think that Israel just wants to destroy a guerrilla movement, Hamas. But here's Israel's bind. By assassination and co-optation, they tried to destroy Fatah, and Hamas emerged. If they obliterate Hamas, something else will take its place. People who are dispossessed and penned into open-air prisons will not surrender in silence. And so the colonizer must destroy not just a political movement. Their enemy is not really communism or Arab nationalism, as they said in the past, or Islamism, as they say now. They must destroy the Palestinian people. They must destroy them not just in Gaza, 
but everywhere, to coin a phrase, from the river to the sea. Ultimately, every single settler colonial project says to the natives, leave or die. Moya, is this a war between two equal sides or a colonial project that must be defeated? I think any regular viewer of Navarra media will know the answer to that. So I want to just focus a little bit on this label that we're increasingly seeing applied to the Palestinians, that of the fact that they're Nazis. This idea, we first it was IS and now it's the Nazis. Recently, we've seen this frequent invocation by Israeli officials. Uh, and there's several aspects here to unpack. One, as you mentioned, calling Palestinians Nazis dehumanizes them en masse. They go from this people living under oppressive occupation to a rump territory on the side of Israel. That's a malevolent, aggressive presence that embodies the worst nightmares of the West. And that is very key. That's the second point, because we've seen denazification used recently by another occupying power, which is Russia. Denazification, for those who don't know, was a process that supposedly aimed to completely dissolve the Nazi state post-1945. It was a process that the Allies uh, were in charge of. It meant the total deconstruction in Germany of the institutions the Nazis had built, the removal of influential Nazi figures. Uh, and, you know, you can talk about how well the Allies actually did that, given that many Nazis were then employed by the CIA. Uh, the small fry might have been uh, pro uh, prosecuted by the state, but the big Nazi fry certainly were not. But looking at this term now that's been dragged into 2023 and abused, if you look at the way it's used in Russia, it's a term that frames a democracy in Ukraine, Zelensky's dem dem democratically elected government as needing to be systemically destroyed and any institutions it might have built with it, you know, really right down to the bottom. You're seeing, you talked about Israeli officials say we need to re, Benjamin Netanyahu in this space with Elon Musk was like, we need to re-educate the children in schools. We need to, from the ground up, really just raise, raise everything, level the country and its structures, all its thinking, all its people, and start again. You're seeing the application, the same one that Russia's using by Israel, framing all these Palestinians and their political social structures as Nazi, as a powerful indictment to level them. And I think it's also important to examine this massive, justifiable spectre that Nazis, a very specific political ideology from you know Germany, um, have in the West. And Putin, when he invokes denazification as a piece of performative rhetoric, it's to justify that Ukrainian invasion to his own population because Nazism in Russia is framed as this horrible Western export from Germany that's creeping towards them, that killed so many Ukrainian Jews, it's on the borders, we have to get rid of it. That's how, what Putin is using denazification as. Um, but Israel is invoking it because obviously the persecution of Jews in Europe and the Holocaust really fueled Zionism in the 1930s and is a huge part of Israel's foundational, like, rhetoric foundational myth and it's really powerful among the domestic Israeli population because of that but it also speaks to western guilt about what the states here what the leaders in the west let happen to Europe's Jews how they sat back and watched while Europe's Jews were systemically destroyed and also what they aided in parts um, I was at a talk recently as well where Wada um, Kanafa who was the former Al Jazeera director talked about the way that Western ideas around anti-Semitism and its manifestation has been imported to the Israel-Palestine region because of how the West uses Israel as this outpost, this Western outpost, and how it also imposes its guilt and its own anti-Semitism onto that region. So we also in the West have characterized Nazis as this ultimate binary evil, very fair, but it's the yardstick. If something doesn't look like a Nazi or doesn't act like a Nazi, we don't conceive of its danger. It's not bad enough to take action. So in the UK on left and right, if you look at like rhetoric we use here, when we're trying to convey rising fascism, everyone goes straight to Nazis as a comparison. I've even seen people on, you know, pro-Palestine protests say, oh, you know, the Israelis are Nazis. They're not Nazis. That's not 
an accurate comparison. This was an anti-Semitic comparison, but it's it's a product of the British and the Western imagination of Nazis, the only evil there can be and the worst evil. Israel, the Israeli state knows this. It's playing on this political lack of political imagination very effectively. And it's both dehumanizing Palestinians, but also providing this justification to absolutely level that country, level that structures and have the West cheer it on. I think that's that's totally right and so well put, Moya. Um, it is this this act of constant colonial projection where we are only allowed to talk about Palestine through the view of the colonizer and not the colonized. So Palestinians have to learn histories of European anti-Semitism for which they're not responsible um, in order to talk about their own country. And, and, and we talk about it constantly through this language of Nazis. And as you say, it's a dehumanizing language that then scarily functions to legitimate violence against Palestinians. Um, thank you so much, Moya, for joining me tonight. I mean, I had brief contributions, but I've really, really enjoyed listening to everyone else tonight. I think it was a fascinating show with a really great international focus. We've had we've had a peculiar show this evening. I, I, I woke up this morning, saw the news and thought, OK, all our other plans are shelved. Um, so thanks, Moya, for bearing with us and for being brilliant as ever. And thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Um, I also want to make a special thanks tonight to our researcher, Stephen, and um, producers, Alex and Bronte, who've been great. Um, come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.